This is Possibility Politics with Jeff Stein. The show where social, political, economic, spiritual, and philosophical discourse goes to live. We never give up the high moral ground, take no political divisioners, and fight until the bitterness ends. And now, here's your host, recovering hope addict and paid volunteer in the American experiment, Jeff Stein. Thank you, Eric Harthen. That's me. I'm Jeff Stein. You know, when... When you commit a crime, you know, especially a public crime that the whole world sees, there are usually three phases of guilt. And as you descend into these phases, uh, your defense gets weaker and weaker. First, you try to deny it. Right? It wasn't me. I didn't do it. I, wasn't, I didn't commit that crime. That rarely works. And then second, you try to explain it away. Uh, ultimately trying to claim that that you were the victim, right? I, I was fi- I was framed, I was set up, I was forced. It was it was self-defense. I was under the influence of a substance or something or, or, or a victim of circumstance. That's part two. And then part three comes along where finally, when all else fails and it's clear that you did it, uh, in fact, everyone except those who would go down with you <laughs> knows that you did it. The whole world knows you did it. Then you go to step three, which is you nullify the criminality by pointing at everyone else who did it too. On this show, we've talked about it before. What about ism? You know, it's well, they're worse. Uh, you know, this has been go- this crime has been going on for years. There's no big deal. There's there's nothing you should react to. It's going on all the time, right? What about ism? And they're, you know, they, they're doing it. So what are you worried about me doing it? And we are now, this, this is where they are, <laughs> is in the nullifying the criminality by what about ism stage. And, and by they, I mean everyone from the sexual harassers to the crony capitalist swamp dwellers to the Trump administration, to the to his Republican enablers and to the corporation's first Democrats. Right. For instance, with them, that's a great example. Let's take the uh, the corporation first Democrats. Right. First, they denied it and said, no, 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 we're not. We're not in the pockets of you know corporations. We're not influenced by that money. And then when it was became painfully obvious that they were, then they tried to explain it away and be and say, well, we, we can't help it. We have to. We can't. Uh, we won't compete uh, if we don't have the money that the Republicans have. This again, this happened in the uh, 90s, basically 80s, 90s. Uh, there was a decision uh, during the Clinton years, basically, when they said, well, let's just start taking corporate money. And they said, well, we have to because we have to compete. So, you know, how can we help? We're forced to. We're a victim of the system, which is not a very principled way to stand. Right. And then you, they got to the third part, which is, well, everyone's doing it. We're all collecting money. So what's the big deal? We're not. And it's like, wow, you just. How did you get so far off the track? And that is where it is with so many parts of our government. And I say that not to depress you. (laughs) I say it so that we can recognize that that is the case so that we will see through it. Our BS meters will be well-tuned. This is the key to being in a renaissance and I, you've heard me say this in the show before. We are in the greatest social, political, economic, spiritual, technological renaissance in the history of mankind. We are living it. 
But the reason that it is a renaissance is because in high contrast is high growth. When things are really ugly and nasty and bitter and we're throwing out on the table the fears and the angers and the blame and the revenge that we've been carrying around forever, it all gets thrown in uh, like dice at a craps table and then we're forced to deal with it. And that leads to a renaissance. And when the history is written, People will look back on this as that moment when people's BS meters had to be tuned, fake news, and people's ideas about oh, their excuses. Oh, you're denying it. Now you're explaining it away. Now you just say you're a victim. Why don't you just stick back with your principles? If you claim to be a person of principle, then what is your principle and what are you doing today to make that a reality? That is where we are. So today uh, on Possibility Politics, the place where we feelize our way to a saner future, we will be enjoying the best ever episode of Law and Order starring Robert S. Mueller III and a cast of terrified characters and the usual suspects. Please enjoy it. You'll see why. Secondly, uh, we will talk about a little about the news cycle dodgeball featuring a six-year-old uranium story and what everyone is talking about on the right wing of the fake media about Hillary. Um, we'll talk about the chief of staff, John Kelly. He has spoken again, and his words require another history review in our national dialogue to show where he got it right and where he needs a refresher on civil war, <coughs> slavery. <coughs> I'll show you the side of the Renaissance that you might have missed. There is an emerging new force in American politics as well as a breaking down uh, of the political scale into, into six. We have six political parties that are now inhabit inhabiting our political discourse. I'll identify those. And uh, we'll talk about the educational philosophy shift that is exemplified by a mindset was born in the Common Core plan that will make you feel very confident in the Republic's future. A lot of our founding fathers, we talk about the founding fathers. One of the things they were very big emphasis on is on as an educated electorate that can think. And there is some good news in that I'm going to share with you. Also, I'll try to calm some nerves on the ongoing Russia manipulation of our social media and our political discourse. There's some good news uh, among the, the terrifying revelations of how much reach they really had. And uh, why not? We're going to look at the new people that were named with new icky allegations in the ongoing reset of our gender uh, relations. We have to get our gender relations together, and we're finally having it. This is a renaissance in that topic, too. But like I said, America's like in six political parties right now. I like this. This is what Salon came up with. I think they've got it pretty close to being right. Uh, there's the the establishment Republicans, which is usually large corporations, Wall Street, major GOP funders, and obviously their goal is just to get cut taxes and get rid of services. There's the anti anti establishment Republicans, which is like your Tea Partiers, your Freedom Caucus, your Libertarians. Their goal: smaller government, shrinking deficits and debts. You know, uh, many of them want to get big money out of politics, which is much more which other parts of the party like. And then the crony capitalism, right? Three is the social conservative Republicans. Those are your evangelicals, your rural Southern white folks. They want America to return what they call, you know, Christian values. There's the establishment Democrats, which is your corporate and Wall Street executives and your upper middle class professionals. Uh, they want a tax cut, too, but they believe in, in equal rights. That's what makes them a little different. The anti-establishment Democrats. Uh, those are the younger grassroots movements, the progressives, you know, they want to see their biggest issue is inequality, racism, sexism, climate change, big money. And the sixth party is the party of Trump. 
and his financial followers, and that goal is just to enrich themselves and try to hold on to it as long as they can and for sport, ultimately, which we'll talk about when we get to Paul Manafort because apparently he loves the sport. That is all coming up when we return to Possibility Politics. This is the mind-expanding experience known as Possibility Politics. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you, Juan Velasquez, who's uh, putting the show together for us over here on the board, running the board, like he's a cool guy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I was, I'm like an old radio guy, and I get off on just uh, having a giant board in front of you instead of just, you know, singing in front of a microphone in your living room like a lot of podcasts do, I guess. But, uh, you know, it's nice to be in an actual studio. Uh, we're in the uh, Premier Studios, uh, which is a longtime employer of mine uh, back in the day. I was a comedy executive here before I got into uh, politics again because I can't help it. I mean, my God, we're in this era. We're in the Renaissance, and I, and I have to be a part of it. So on the show today, again, I, one of the overriding themes is that those three components of you know committing a crime, denying it, explaining it away, being the victim, and then uh, and then what aboutism. So we're gonna that's gonna be a thread that's gonna go through. And the other one that is this mindset that is in Common Core. Uh, and if you don't know what Common Core is. People have this, like, everything is disparaged. Every time there's a change in government, uh, everybody just disparages it. It's pretty standard operating procedure, right? Because change is bad, and so we have to find out, find out what's wrong with it, especially if you've got political parties, because then whoever political party derived that new policy, it must automatically be vilified and destroyed so that it seems like that they're, you know, the losers and we're the winners. But I will say to you, Common Core, the best thing about it is it is teaching People to be critical thinkers, students to be critical thinkers is teaching them how to be cooperative, is teaching them how to live in a community. And I know uh, people on the rights minds hate that word ever since it was, you know, Obama was called a community organizer. So if you can find another word that makes you happy, <laughs> words matter, I know. Uh, so be in a environment, be in a neighborhood, wherever you like. But it's considering your fellow man and working with your fellow man and woman in order to uh, better everyone's uh, life as well as as well as the broader perspective. In fact, anybody who's a, a good CEO worth their salt knows that you create uh, success an opportunity by giving, by making it a shared opportunity. The best companies are those where the employees are not just uh, slaves rowing the ship, but are rather uh, valued uh, talent that are giving their considerable gifts uh, to a worthy endeavor for an agreed upon time and uh, compensation. That's something I tell you, by the way, a little uh, plug for Jeff Stein here. Uh, if you uh, find my uh, philosophy interesting, I am an inspiration facilitator, which means that I go into companies, groups, individuals, organizations, and speak to them, or to do seminars, run activities in order to remind you why you're doing what you do. Because inspiration is all that anyone who ever did anything ever needed. And if you realize that, that life is a belief game, that life is about inspiring your people for a common cause— uh, that is going to do you better. And one of my little catchphrases I tell people who are frustrated by their job uh, or frustrated by politics, whatever you're doing, get up and like because when you start your day at work, say to yourself, I am giving my considerable talents to a worthy endeavor for an agreed upon time and compensation. Or I am paying attention to politics and the world to contribute my powerful, inspired energy towards an outcome that will benefit everyone. If you create those intentions in, within you, then you will live it, you will be part of it, and you will express it. And not only uh, will you feel better about what you did in the world, you will actually improve the world. You will be the change you want to see. So back to the common core thing. This is a great new system. And it is. It's, and it's also one of the other parts that the, there's a mindset. My son is a, uh, a freshman at high school, 
and John Burroughs High in Burbank. And he's, uh, <laughs> don't go stalk him. He's, uh, <laughs> he's six foot one. You can't stalk him anyway. He's easy to find. It, the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, they have his math teacher uses this mindset, and a lot of other teachers using it too, which is try, struggle, fail, fix, learn. Try, struggle, fail, fix, learn. How does that compare to your education? Now, I don't know about you. When I was in high school, it was basically let's determine your ranking with respect to other students, then force you to be to compete or be shamed. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much how it went is, oh, you're a C student, you're a B student, you're an A student, you're a whatever student, either push to get better or uh, accept your place in the world. And that's not exactly a motivation. And so instead, try, struggle, fail, fix, learn. And... The practical application of that, they don't worry about testing as much. You know, you if you fail a test, it's like, well, we're more interested in whether or not you can fix it and learn it than giving you some sort of mark that's going to carry through your educational experience to the rest of your life. So, but when you look at the to compare to dis, is to despair aspect of it, which is determine your ranking, then force you to be to compete or be shamed. That's Trump. That's Donald Trump. He only understands the latter. To him, it is all about how do I be number one? How do I prove that I am number one? And if I can prove to everyone I'm number one, then I'll be number one. And it doesn't. And it just if I can just get the ranking on paper. But people don't follow rankings on paper. They follow inspiration. They follow truth. They follow purpose. Uh, they follow possibility. This is why we do this show. So, uh, <laughs> which leads us to the uh, the news of the day. Maybe I can bring in a little uh, Seth Myers to uh, explain to us what's going on. Here we go. He got off to a rough start, and then this morning he woke up to even worse news. Former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort and his business associate Rick Gates have been indicted by a federal grand jury on a number of felony charges, including money laundering and conspiracy against the United States. No, I'm no legal expert, but conspiracy against the United States does not sound good. Doesn't leave much room for a plea bargain. What if I just copped a conspiracy against Delaware? You know Delaware was asking for it. <laughs> Thank you, Seth Myers. Yes, it all blew open. Please enjoy this. For those that it's scaring, which polling is showing it's kind of scaring uh, just about everyone. In fact, it's scaring uh, Donald Trump. There was a Washington Post article that upstairs at home with the, the I love this headline. Upstairs at home with the TV on, Trump fumes over Russia indictments. He's freaking out as is as are money of the staffers <laughs> within the uh, organization. But it's how everybody else is reacting that is super fascinating, right? First was Paul Ryan and he just kind of decided that, nah, you know, I'm not really paying attention. I'm just going to, I'm going to do tax cuts. I'm going to get my tax cuts through, which side note, you're not going to get anything through uh, right now. There's, there's no way they're going to get a bunch of tax cuts to billionaires while uh, this Russia investigation continues <laughs> to go on. But let's enjoy this for a moment because this is good law and order drama, y'all. Robert Mueller, this guy, and his some 19, I believe, 19 of the greatest prosecutorial attorneys, generals, and lawyers that have literally existed since history. I mean, we are in the leading edge of time right now because it is where we are. And these are the leading edge lawyers who are going against a group that doesn't really know what they're doing and has no clue. And they managed to snatch uh, Papadopoulos. You've heard this guy, George Papadopoulos. If you're following the news, 
He was a, you know, according to the Trump administration, a very low-level operative on the Security Council, on the security team, the national security team, right? But he was arranging meetings with the Russians, right? He was trying to. And they snatched him while he was getting off a plane or on a plane, I can't remember, at Dulles Airport and managed to keep that quiet from July all the way until now. And part of the reason, I mean, the way that Bob Mueller is executing this, if you're watching the punditry on TV, you know this, is just the chess game. While, while Donald Trump plays Twitter, he's playing chess and he is so beautifully orchestrating it. So enjoy it um, because they got Papadopoulos and then they put him back into the White House in the campaign or the it was after the campaign. They put him back in the White House. Presumably with a wire. I keep seeing uh, experts, you know, obviously the attorney generals and, and, and uh, who worked during not only all the way back to Watergate to today saying, well, if you're a proactive cooperator, as he was explained in the indictments, the 12 counts against Paul Manafort and uh, and his business associate, Rick, uh, Rick the, if you were a political cooperator, a proactive cooperator, that most likely means that you were probably wearing a wire or at least you were being spoken to after every meeting and asked, you know, what did you get? You were being prodded to go into these meetings and try to bring up certain conversations so that you could get answers on records. And they are killing it. Bob Mueller is killing it. And he's making it very clear with this circumstance because he busted Papadopoulos on on lying to the FBI. Obviously, he could have charged him with more crimes, but they let him plea down to this lying to the FBI, not only so that he would cooperate, but also so that he could send to the message that you will talk to me, Bob Mueller saying, you need to talk to me and you need to be truthful or I will indict you. And they are not getting it. In When this came out, Ty Cobb, the lawyer who's running the Trump's, you know, he's the head lawyer of Trump's defense, by being paid for by Trump supporters, by the way, not supporters like billionaires. Like they, as you saw, they disclosed they took the money from donations from small people who just wanted to support Donald Trump. And they're using it for his legal defense fund, which they can legally do. But you as a Trump supporter might want to know that so you know where your money's going. Maybe that's good. Maybe you feel like, yeah, I'll spend the money to support my guy and to defend him. But this lawyer who has no experience in this sort of thing, they didn't hire any lawyers who understand about RICO laws and money laundering and collusion and conspiracy to uh, against the U.S. government. One of the charges that Fox News didn't mention, I got such a kick out of it. The day, after, the day when this broke on Monday, the headline on Fox News was Paul Man. It said Bob Mueller gets his man. It was singular because they wanted you to believe that it was over. And then the back part, the set, the second part of the lead was that uh, 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 about how it, it didn't even. Oh shoot, I forgot, lost my thought. That <laughs> he wasn't going to. Uh, they weren't going to go. Be, oh, it didn't include. It said money laundering and other crimes. It didn't mention. The crime, as Seth Meyers just mentioned, of conspiracy against the United States. They wanted to de-emphasize that one. And it's not, in fact, it's not the only thing they de-emphasized. And I got to bring Seth Meyers back in again to, uh, this cracks me up, what Fox News is having to do to deal with their guy, their party, their tribe, uh, having a little bit of legal trouble. And when none of your defenses work, there's always the option of ignoring the news completely. As other news outlets were going wall-to-wall with coverage of the Manafort indictment, here's what Fox News thought was more important. 
All right, this cheeseburger emoji causing a frenzy online. We've been talking about it all morning. Can you see what's wrong with this picture? The cheese is underneath the hamburger. Who does that? Unless the answer is Paul Manafort, who cares? <laughs> of course, yeah. Fox News was just following the playbook they and the Trump team had adhered to all weekend after the news of the pending criminal charges came down on Friday. Trump went on a Twitter rant in which he tried to distract from the news and lash out at everyone from James Comey to the Democrats to Hillary Clinton. President Trump released a torrent of tweets this weekend, his frustration building to an all-caps crescendo. Never seen such Republican anger and unity as I have concerning the lack of investigation on Clinton-made fake dossier. The uranium to Russia deal, the 33,000 plus deleted emails, the Comey fix, and so much more. Instead, they look at phony Trump-Russia collusion, which doesn't exist. The Dems are using this terrible and bad for our country witch hunt for evil politics, but the Republicans are now fighting back like never before. There is so much guilt by Democrats, Clinton, and now the facts are pouring out. Do something. Do something? He sounds like a supervillain barking orders at his henchmen after James Bond escapes. <laughs> He's getting away. Do something. But his henchmen are yelling back. We can't. We're all under federal investigation. <laughs> exactly. And so they're trying to deflect it. They immediately say, oh, there's nothing here. There's nothing going on. And it's it. Again, we've lost sight of what an administration would normally do. If you were, let, let's put it this way, let's put the words in my mouth, because it is, you, you say, well, well, that seems crazy. But if you put it in the context of what should have been said, Huckabee Sanders, for instance, she immediately said, oh, it's all just garbage. She said it was a, the, the, this whole uh, allegations about Russia is deplorable and unacceptable. Now, I would say this is what Huckabee Sanders should have said. She should have said that the ongoing attack by Russia on our social media and our electorate is deplorable and unacceptable. And that we, the White House, will fully cooperate with the investigation to stop it. Because remember, she swore an oath to uphold the Constitution. Even though she's a press secretary, she's a secretary. All secretaries swear an oath to the U.S. Constitution and to uphold that Constitution and defend her rights, your right, the rights of, of, of the citizens. And here we are, and they're saying, nah, you know, <laughs> they don't get it, though. Mueller isn't bluffing. And witnesses are talking. This is happening. This is going to be, as I've said before in this show, one of the, the greatest crimes in American history. This is deeper than anybody imagines. Well, some people imagine it and some people are getting it. But it is that big of a deal. And there's not much hope they're going to get out from under it. And it gets back to that original thing. They're just going to stay on the whataboutism. They're not going to, you know, try, struggle, fail, fix, learn. <laughs> They're just going to pretend like everything is fine. So when we come back, I want to talk about Paul Manafort. His daughter, a couple of his daughters, their, twi their texts were released somehow and hacked into and released. And it shows the insight on who this guy is. And I'll give you that when we return to Possibility Politics. Thank you for being a believer in possibility politics. I'm Jeff Stein, and uh, we're talking about, well, the biggest crime in American history, probably. 
In fact, even, uh, what's it, uh, Hugh Hewitt, a conservative host, uh, kind of made some news just this morning on MSNBC when he said, yeah, this is bigger than Watergate. It's like, oh, oh welcome to the party. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot bigger than Watergate. Watergate was this kind of crime against, you know, some conspiracy and work against uh, the Democratic Party. It was an intra-party thing. This is colluding and working and money laundering and financing through major through our, our sworn enemy who is actively attacking us. And a little bit later in the show, I'm going to get to, again, the Russia uh, atom bomb, for lack of a better word. That is actually what they called it. And back in 2012 or 2013, there was a speech that was given, a closed-door speech with a bunch of uh, Russian operatives that got leaked out and then translated. And they went, holy crap, they're bragging about an army of trolls and a atom bomb of social media disturbance, which will control the narrative of other countries, especially the U.S., we're going to talk about what that, uh, how that worked in a minute. Um, but uh, I want to get to our guy, Paul Manafort. Once again, Seth Myers, if you don't mind, Seth. Well, maybe there's a perfectly good explanation for all 12 counts against Manafort. I mean, does he sound like a guilty man to you? So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I think, uh, you know, I'm gonna, I think I'll probably die in jail. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Seth. Uh, the, so one of the things that leaked out about Paul Manafort, because we're learning about this guy, and, and even though they tried to diminish it, because as soon as he had to lead the campaign, they, you know, they immediately wanted to diminish his his role. And on a minute, I want to also play a piece from Megan McCain who explains, because the, the Republican insiders are starting to tell everyone who this guy really is. But apparently... A bunch of texts between Jessica Manafort and Andrea Manafort's Shand, uh, who are his daughters, they somehow somebody hacked into it. Klepto- Kleptoia, I don't remember the name of this website is, but there's websites everywhere that just, you know, if you put something in text and you put something in writing, I, there's an old expression in business. You've probably heard this before. Say bad, write good. Meaning that if you're going to put something in writing, make sure it's good. And if you have to just put something, say something bad, say it. Don't put it in writing so that it won't lose the issue of context or be passed around to those who wouldn't understand the reference of it. So uh, that lesson aside, Paul Manafort's uh, daughter. Back, let me give you some little excerpts from this because this is this is pretty crazy stuff. March 17, 2016. Jessica Manafort says, guess who called dad last night and asked him to run his convention? Andrea, the other daughter, mom told me he was going to call dad. She told me to get ready for Trump to be president and pick the position in the White House I want. <laughs> and then uh, Jessica came back. Dad gave him a list of requirements. And so long as he can fulfill the list, dad accepted. So Manafort said uh, he gave a list of requirements of what he wanted to Donald Trump. And then as long as he could get him, you know, quid pro quo. I love it because obviously it's projection. What about is right? How What do they say about Hillary all the time? Pay for play, pay for play. Well, <laughs> Manafort was and Trump were paying for playing constantly. Uh, here's another one. Back in the um, after the, the article in the CNN about Manafort's expanded role in the campaign. Uh, this was between a friend and the daughter. The friend says, and like if Trump gets elected, who's going to be chief of staff? And Andrea, the daughter, says, oh, he pff, he would never accept. The friend says, too many skeletons in his closet. Andrea says, too constrictive. Dad is a lone wolf. He has to go his own way, do what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. He doesn't have room for other people and their needs or wants. And the friend says, yeah, that sounds about right. 
<laughs> and the daughter, he likes the challenge. That's why he's doing this. It's a game for him. He isn't being paid. The friend, man, I bet he's loving it. Daughter, this is pure sport. He is a power-hungry egomaniac. This is the daughter talking about her dad. Yes, he is loving it conclusively. Him and Trump are perfect allies for this agenda. It's so weird he is my dad. <laughs> Later in the conversation, it's just weird. Like, my dad doesn't seem that smart. Like, he is smart, but I know I'm smarter than him. <laughs> the friend says, I don't doubt that. He's a master manipulator, which seems pretty key. Daughter, he is very manipulative. Manipulative. I did inherit that ability, but I don't exploit it like he does. I know all his tactics. They are that, aren't that brilliant, but they do work. The friend, but yes, you're right. You have a more, yes, you're right. You have a moral conscience. Daughter, like he tells, like he just tells you the sky is green over and over. And eventually you are like, it is, is it? I don't possess the ability to just lie like he does. This is, they're talking about their dad. The friend, yeah, he works his charm. The daughter, it's confidence. When you say something unwaveringly, people start to believe it. The friend, I mean, yeah, that got Trump where he is today. See, they get it. The daughter, yep, perfect allies. Trump probably has more morals than my dad. Whoa, <laughs> which is really just saying something about my dad. My dad is a psycho, three exclamation points. At least Trump let his wives leave him. Let his wives leave him. Apparently Manafort has even let his wife leave him. Plus, Trump has been a good father, according to the daughter. Trump waited a little too long, in my opinion, but I can attest to the fact that he now has now hired one of the world's greatest manipulators. That's her dad. I hope my dad pulls it off. Then I can sell my memoir with all his dirty secrets for a pretty penny. Who's the manipulator? Love this. The daughter. He was brought on to the convention manager, but it was all really was always to run stuff and now he's being publicly known or acknowledged i guess the other daughter chimes in dad and trump are literally living in the same building and mom says they go up and down all day long hanging and plotting together and then uh after manafort refused pay payment as a power play his daughter claimed yep uh that's a match made in heaven egomaniacs galore but yeah, my dad is super tight with the Trumps. All the kids call him all the time. And him and Trump both live in, New in Trump Tower in New York City. So it's like a sitcom, although top, top secret. Can't repeat, promise. My dad isn't getting paid for Trump. The friend says, what, really? Daughter, he refused payment. Trump is only covering expenses. Friend, political favors later? Daughter, eh, maybe, but the truth of it is, I think there are rules for how much you can pay com campaign personnel, so it isn't much to start with, not to my dad anyway, meaning that the salary of a staffer doesn't mean anything to him, right? And my dad wants Trump to listen to him and respect him, view him as an equal, not as staff, so refusing payment makes it so, and makes it clear to Trump why my dad is doing it, because he wants to. And my dad won't take an appointment either. Trump knows that too. So this isn't for personal gain for my dad. And that's not, and that's true, not a game. So why is my dad doing it? Sport. This is his wheelhouse, says the daughter. And he gets off on power too. My dad loves challenges. And this is like a chess game. He got a mistress because he was bored. Trump is his new mistress. This is unfreaking believable. The daughter goes on. My mom told me they were going to be, they were going to call the uh, them all co-managers. And then between he and Corey Lewandowski. And then Corey went to Trump's son-in-law, Ivanka's husband, and burst into tears about how they would ruin him. So since my dad doesn't care about titles, this was the compromise to make them uh, the different titles. Anyway, and it said, talks about how, uh, the daughters talk about how his their dad is picking the VP. Uh, they're talking about how, uh, 
when he was put down off the uh, the, the pedestal of being the uh, the campaign manager, the daughter says, uh, my dad hasn't been demoted. That's total BS. No surprise that the media is wrong again. My dad hired all those people, interviewed them in Trump Towers. And then when he resigned, as I suspected, my dad resigned from being the public face of the campaign, but is still uh, very much involved behind the scenes. He felt it was becoming a distraction that he would ultimately take a toll on the campaign. The friend, wow, well, I'm really glad he's still part of it. Seriously, who knows what would have happened at the convention if he wasn't there. Daughter, yeah, for sure. He said that in a few next weeks, we should hopefully be seeing a new Trump, so to speak. Yeah, last night's speech was a speech my dad had been pushing for him to make. So he tried. He tried to fix him, uh, but it didn't work out. And this is the guys we're dealing with. And no matter how much the Trump campaign tries to say that these guys uh, were not involved, that Paul Manafort was a small part of it, They were clearly co-stars in a sitcom, birds of a feather. These are the guys. So if you're worried that somehow Trump is going to get away with this, know that the way they have snared Donald Trump. uh, Take this point. If Donald Trump wasn't president, they would have either co-indicted them like he did Paul Manafort and his business manager, or they would have indicted Trump first. But because he's the president and Congress has to do the removing then they had to, Bob Mueller had to play this like a chess match and work it up. And he started with stuff that didn't seem to be collusion, so, except for Papadopoulos, so that he could scare the crap out of him and get them all talking. And it turns out a lot of people referenced in there have already been talking. That news has been breaking. So when we come back, we're going to talk about the uranium story that doesn't make any sense, but they love on the right wing because it's whataboutism when we return to Possibility Politics. Possibility Politics, the place where we feelize our way to a saner future. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for listening. Try us out on Facebook and Twitter, please. Uh, always love your dialogue. Give us your five feedback. Um, <laughs> tell me where to go. I love it. Tell me where I'm wrong. Uh, because on this show, the point is not to be wrong or right. It's less about wrong or right. And this is the new paradigm of, uh, of reality, is that we are going to be more worried about whether it is inspiration or desperation, whether it is fear or love, whether it is kindness or cruelty. Because that is the only definition we can kind of get a sense of what the difference is. Because if we're going to fight over facts, uh, everyone gets their own facts, pretty much. This is a factless world. We're starting to realize that facts don't matter as much as how it feels to the people involved. Uh, because you know what it is. If you're feeling like a victim, if you feel like you're trapped, if you're feeling like you're powerless, you will rush to the relief of blame and revenge. And you will use facts to do it. But it's about the relief of, of blame and revenge. And so this is playing out everywhere. And this is the new pop culture, is politics, because it's all brought home. That's one good thing that Donald Trump did, for sure, is being a reality show host. He took the disconnected world of reality shows where we just kind of tune out and uh, I don't even know what's going on. I don't care. Just show me some people arguing and turn it into actual real life. He made the reality show real life. And now we're suddenly going, oh, who are the characters and what's happening and where's the drama? And so it plays out on places like The View, you know, the show The View, right? And this will further elucidate. This is They have Meghan McCain, who was recently added as the conservative host on uh, God bless the conservatives who go on that show, whether it was all the way back to Elizabeth Hasselbeck or currently to Meghan McCain, because I will give them credit. One out of five, they are 20 percent of the conversation and have to hold their own and they have to kind of be responsible for everything. So uh, my sympathies to Meghan McCain, but also... 
Uh, Megan, you really, some things are, are indefensible, but uh, she will give it a shot right here. This is the indictment, by the way, everyone. <laughs> but you know what? We don't it's know what we don't stupid. know yet. Let's not get, like, let's just, that we don't even know exactly what's happening. But if we talk about the happening. indictment, which is a fact, right? Because I, I have I'm it right it's here. It's, 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 it's also a fact is that it came out last week that the DNC and Hillary Clinton has ties through this Fusion GPS Oppo research group, and they also paid money to get this Russian dossier. Now, what I'm not saying, a, I don't like the term nothing. But isn't that normal to have opposition research? Yes. It's not. Not, not through the Russian government, not no, through Russian operatives, which ways, Hillary Clinton did it, as well. It's not that it, it came out to Trump, but I'm saying I always had a problem with the fact that there was an, think, a, a crazy amount of ties. But this is the and this is a breakdown of, of democracy and the humor and levity surrounding it on both sides. And by the way, I would like to both say sides. that there's a quote that wait, just wait, came wait, out. Wait, 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 wait. Let's not talk can about I, both sides. Can I please finish? No, no, no. Let's not talk about both sides. Let's talk about what's happening today. Hillary Clinton is not the president, and Hillary Clinton wasn't just indicted. <laughs> no. You know what? No. You know what? No. I'm actually, you know what? I'm trying to give you guys insight because I actually know a lot. We don't about need Paul insight Manafort. into Hillary Clinton. See why she's trying to give him insights? You can smell the psychology of all this. She's taking it personally, which understood because she's feeling attacked. And so she has to defend why she's giving this information, which basically belies the fact that she doesn't believe it. So anyway, listen. Talk, let her talk. I okay. hear. You don't need any. You don't need any insight. No, Megan, I want to hear. I, you know what? Paul Manafort, I will say for those of us who work in Republican politics, has always been someone who has been ethically ambiguous for a very long time because of these money dealings and allegedly taking money from Ukrainian officials in the Russian government. We all know the story about Don Jr. meeting up with the Russian operative allegedly to get oppo research on Hillary Clinton. A source to the White House just said to Sarah Murray, these guys were bad guys when they started. They were bad guys when they left. So during the campaign, when he was hiring people like Roger Stone and Paul Manafort, it raised a lot of alarms for people like me, because in interpolitical circles, your campaign operatives are a reflection of the candidate. Yes. So why weren't those our alarms raised? If you want to be petty, and I'm going to have a moment of pettiness here, and that is, is that when Roger Stone and Paul Manafort were brought on, which if you're in Republican circles, you know they are dirty. Those guys, in fact, they're most often Paul Manafort is referred to as a pirate <laughs> because he famously is a mercenary who moves through circumstances to try to profit. And in fact, we found out in the last 24 hours that he had three passports that he was using and he used a fake phone and fake numbers and fake names when he traveled abroad. If Hillary Clinton had had a campaign manager, the head of what is a billion dollar operation. Don't forget, every presidential campaign now is basically a half a billion dollar operation, half a billion to a billion dollar operation. If that person had had fake passports and ran around the country, there would not be this equivocation. There would be this outcry of, oh, yeah, that's obviously uh, set off alarms. Yes, it set off alarms for Meghan McCain and other conservatives, but they didn't do anything. And I know it's not the responsibility to fix everything, but, you know, do you, for your own self-preservation, you know, as I've said on the show before, I'm kind of, I come from a family of of what I call Eisenhower Republicans. That's how I was raised. Uh, And it. The, seeing what happens has happened to the Republican Party just breaks theirs and my heart. It doesn't make any sense anymore. There's no it, it's become so tribal. And, and don't get me wrong. There are swaths of the Democratic Party that are thoroughly tribal for sure. But it's like anything. You don't want the, the uh, patients running the asylum. You don't want the fringe dictating what is the purpose of of the party. And that's what happens when you get so tribal that you lose sight of what is going on. So 
What is this uranium thing? For those who aren't watching Fox News or Breitbart or Drudge Report, you're like, what is this this uranium stuff? And I, and I got this great clip. Joy Reid of MSNBC, she had on a conservative who started to go down that line of, of, of talking points about how it's all about uh, the whataboutism of, of Hillary selling uranium overseas. And so let me just give you a little taste here. You can get that. You can parse through it. It's a well done thing. The last week or two that there was a Russian spy who was getting close to Hillary Clinton. This was reported in the mainstreams. You have Bill Clinton, is who is accepting We're not going to get to real, but I want to ask you a couple fact-based questions. Sure. Who got the money when the Canadian company was sold to the Russian company, the Iranian one? Uh, who received the money? I presume the company, but look. Yeah, okay, there. second question. Mm -hmm. Who approved the sale? Because when any sort of uranium or any company that sells sort of sensitive type products, and by the way, the uranium that's mined in these mines, right, yep. is for nuclear power. It's not for nuclear bombs, right? But when that happens, there is an organization called CFIS that approves it. Do you know what CFIS stands yes, for? Yes, absolutely. What does it stand for? Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. How many people sit on that committee? Nine members. How many have to approve a deal like this? Uh, all nine, nine of them, members. I believe. How many absolutely. approve this deal? Uh, nine of them. Did Hillary Clinton sit personally on that deal? No, but she, she did pushed not. for it. She, no, she and did you know not. What? No, 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 hold on. Here. Who is the person yeah. who donated to Hillary Clinton who is related to and had an investment in Uranium One? What is that person's name? Do you remember their name? Uh, they are board members of Uranium One, donated up to 100, I think it's Kustra, $143 million. Tom Kustra. And when did to Tom the Clinton Kustra, Foundation. did he own any assets in Uranium One at the time that Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State? You know, I don't know that, but not. here's what I would... sold them. Here's what I I'd like before. to know. So hold on one second. Should, you no, should want to know sold too. them years before. Yep. So what you're talking about is a deal that nine members of CFIS approved unanimously, none of whom was Hillary Clinton. You have a donor who separately gave Hillary Clinton donations at a time when she was not Secretary of State. The two things cross in the night. They have no relation to each other. The members of CFIS have been very clear that Hillary Clinton had nothing to do with approving that deal. She would have had to strong arm eight other people in order to get them to unanimously approve the deal. And ultimately, the President of the United States would intervene if they saw any problem. The CFIS people say now, if that deal came before them today, they would still approve it unanimously. There's actually nothing about the deal that's controversial. The only reason we're talking about it is because, per your even admission, which I think is very honest, the RNC would like us to be talking about this now. Yeah. This is a classic case of they're trying to say it's a pay for play and there was no pay and no play. <laughs> they literally did not get <laughs> what they wanted. They got what they wanted, but it was before Hillary was Secretary of State. And it was by this board that she couldn't possibly have influenced except for one member, even if she did. And it didn't matter anyway because she didn't get paid for it. And the pay was separate from it and before it. So this is how, and they want to make this one little thing. And if you are the faithful, you know, we're in this weird time in our political discourse where people just want to hear that the other tribe is bad and their tribe's crimes are explainable. Remember part two, that it can be explained away. But even if that deal was wrong, and also they said it was 20% of our uranium went to Russia. That's not our lives been bandied around. No, it's not even 2%, <laughs> first of all. And second of all, if that was the great infraction, A, she's not president, and B, hey, if Congress wants to go after it, which they are, they've, they've derailed the Russian committee, the judiciary, I'm mean, sorry, the uh, intelligence committee in the Senate and the House have, uh, in Senate, they've broken up into two parts, Democrats and Republicans, because the, the Republicans are determined to find all the stuff about Hillary, while ignoring that people like George Papadopoulos were going to Russia, you know, Trump, remember how much we've forgotten 
at the G20 G20 summit, how he pulled Fluten aside and had a 30 minute conversation and how he had Kislyak in the Oval Office on the first week of him being president, let alone these stories, which are not uh, refuted of Donald Trump Jr. meeting with him. So it's very clear. It is very clear. And when if you get crazy hearing somebody denying all of it, let it go. They are not going to believe anything. And if you don't, if that, if this doesn't convince you, what would, right? Because if you can't see that one side of the scale has got five million pounds of of money in uranium on one side, and the other side has a couple pennies that were not that weren't even re- received by a person who isn't president, <laughs> if they can't see that those aren't the same, there's certainly no way that you're going to be able to convince them that that is the case, right? So get just enjoy it. That is the the theme I'm trying to uh, uh, press along here, as because this this case is going to keep going, and there's going to be moments. Uh, here's another great moment. Uh, Donald Trump was asked uh, about whether or not he was going to pardon Manafort already. Check it out. Okay. We're not looking for that. No, we're not looking for that. Hopefully not. Uh, something. Uh, some people have mentioned that. Hopefully not. Are you gonna Are you gonna pardon Manafort? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. going to dodge thank out. You're going to Paul No, we're not going to talk about that moment of pardon Paul Manafort. Because I can assure you that uh, he's not going to get good advice from Ty Cobb and company. They don't know anything about this. And one of the lawyers on Bob Mueller's team, by the way, one of those 19 lawyers, is an expert in pardons. He even got one of those. And how to uh, manipulate, because again, there's state pardons and there's federal pardons. And so they're coming and going to come at him from both directions. They're going to have state crimes and federal crimes, and they're going to prosecute it up so that they will not be able to just pardon their way out of it. Which again, by the way, if you pardon somebody out, that is an omission of guilt. Okay? It is, and and also if you forgot what uh, uh, money laundering is, I mean, I should probably dig up. Let's dig up some Breaking Bad so we can uh, remind us uh, uh, what uh, money laundering yeah. is. You give me your money, okay? That's called placement. Oh. This is the nail salon, right? I take your dirty money and I slip it into the salon's nice, clean cash flow. That's called layering. <laughs> Final step: integration. The revenues from the salon go to the owner. That's you. Your filthy drug money has been transformed into nice, clean, taxable income brought to you by a savvy investment in a thriving business. So you want me to buy this place so I can pay taxes? I'm a criminal, yo. Yeah, and if you want to stay a criminal and not become, say, a convict, then maybe you should grow up and listen to your lawyer. (laughs) Listen to your lawyer. (laughs) That is what Paul Manafort did. Money laundering is where, you know, you try to take, in fact, in this case, they allege about $75 million, uh, at least minimum, of Russian money, which is, again, why you can... And he would buy properties on there uh, and then... Because the the great way to money launder it is that you take this money, they buy a property, they give you the property, and then you pull out a loan on... You put a loan back on the property. They buy the property cash... Uh, with this money from Cyprus and such, the same bank where Donald Trump does his banking. And by the way, one of the Bank of Cyprus uh, is now up for confirmation to be part of the Trump administration to handle. You know, it's like they just keep uh, stocking themselves with it. And if you don't believe Matt, Paul Manafort was part of it, hey, you know, let's uh, let's ask the words of Sean Hannity, who said nobody should underestimate how much Paul Manafort did to really help get 
this Trump campaign to where it is right now. So Sean Hannity is happy to give all of the credit uh, to Paul Manafort. So and Mueller, again, he isn't bluffing and witnesses are talking. This will happen. They will go down. So and I keep saying that and I repeat that to you, because if you're watching it, it's scary. You feel like so powerless, like, oh, my God, is he going to get away with it? No, no, they're not going to get away with it. How it will crash, how it will happen. He now, again, not to be completely morbid and insensitive, but Donald Trump might pull a Ken Lay and have a heart attack and not have to go to jail. I don't know. And if that to you is, is getting away with it, well, I, <laughs> I don't know what to say. But that is uh, they will not escape the law, the long arm of the law. And they will not escape Bob Mueller and his 19 lawyers. OK, when we come back. John Kelly said some things about slavery and the Civil War, which we really have to address because the facts behind this, you probably don't know about Robert E. Lee. That when we return to Possibility Politics. This is Possibility Politics. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Juan Velasquez, putting the show together. This is the place where we look at this great experiment called America and hopefully leave it better than we found it. I try to because the point is to move forward, y'all. I, I, if, you, if you're looking for revenge radio, uh, if you're looking for to, to, to be con- told you're right and your side is winning, uh, you're not going to find that here because uh, the side I want to win are people, progress, evolution, uh, self-realization, epiphanies. <laughs> I want to move forward. I've been in radio all my life, and I've uh, been on as an individual. I used to be one of those revenge guys. Certainly during the Bush years, I would— piss and moan about all, all the, the Iraq war and this and that and the injustices of, uh, you know, and, and, and during the Clinton years, I would piss and moan about uh, the, uh, the, the crime bill and the uh, corporatization of everything and the deregulation of uh, the, the media. In fact, I was working in media and then, you know, I was working for companies that they said, no, oh, own as many stations you want, as many broadcasts. It doesn't matter. It won't uh, affect the and, and the fairness doctrine. I remember when they got rid of the fairness doctrine. And for those of you not old enough to remember, that's where when you had a discussion show about politics or issues or news, you were required to, in fairness, put on a perspective that was in opposition to the opinionated conclusions you were making. Reagan got rid of that. And after that was gone, then you got folks like, uh, you know, I want to mention names because I don't want to put any names out. But, you know, right wing talkers, uh, a wave of right wing talkers who were allowed to then speak only from one perspective. Uh, and then there was a the left wing talkers that followed it. And of course, the right uh, giving it to the to the conservatives, I will give you the side um, that there was that voice was underplayed compared to the quote unquote liberal voice because it was more mainstream news, if you will, was more, quote unquote, liberal or progress oriented, progressive oriented. And these more conservative values of we want to have country kind of hold where it is, stay with the Christian values, stay with the whatever values. But I would submit to you that, again, coming from a family of Eisenhower Republicans, uh, Republicans used to evolve and used to be very big on progress and evolution. And uh, and they would have a Republican from that time would have looked at Christianity and evangelicals and said, what happened to the growth? Uh, no disrespect to evangelicals. I, I, I appreciate it. But if you're a Bible literalist, uh, you may be in a bit of a, a hole there because you've uh, not allowed yourself to evolve. But that's not, that's that's a discussion I just tangented on my own. I can't help it. Uh, but that happened. I apologize. Back to uh, <laughs> back to the stories that we're facing right now. John Kelly, uh, White House Chief of Staff, 
as you know, the guy who, uh, gosh, I, I won't even talk about him attacking the Gold Star mom, uh, Davis, you know, La David Davis, or La David, Maisha, jeez, I'm forgetting the name, sorry, Maisha Johnson, La David Johnson's widow. That happened last week, which was ugly enough. And to me, that was kind of a first strike, a strike against him. Go Dodgers, by the way, speaking of strikes and balls. Go Dodgers. Or Astros, if you like the Astros, whatever. It's Game 7 tonight. Uh, so so if you've already seen Game 7, I hope it went well for you uh, if you're listening to the show in delay. So John Kelly uh, kind of blew it. That I was like, okay, that's strike one. And then when he did this, uh, I kind of thought it was strike two when he was on Laura Ingram's show. They're rebooting Fox, if you hadn't noticed, because, hello, it is a din of sexual harassment and bullying and they're trying to reboot it. And Laura Ingram is one of the new talents. God bless her. Good luck. But she had John Kelly on who uh, went out. So there we go. Or not. Here we go a second. Let's start this clip over again. Here we go. The lack of an ability to compromise uh, led to the Civil War. And uh, men and women of good faith on both sides made their stand where their conscience uh, had them make their stand. You know, 500 years later, uh, it's inconceivable to me that you would take what we, we think now and apply it back then. I would tell you that Robert E. Lee was an honorable man. Uh, he was a man that uh, gave, up, uh, gave up his country to fight for his state, which in 150 years ago was more important than country. I think we make a mistake, though, and, and as a society and certainly as, uh, as individuals, when we take what is today accepted as right and wrong and go back 100, 200, 300 years, uh, or, or more and say what those, you know, what Christopher Columbus did was wrong. Now, I will give him that context is hugely important. What was done 100 years ago does not, uh, a decision someone made at that time, including like, for instance, Abraham Lincoln, who did not compromise. What he did do during the Civil War, as you may recall, is that uh, he demanded that slavery had to end, but in order to preserve the reunion, he was willing to at first start by not expanding slave states, but uh, they wouldn't accept that. In fact, they were aggressively trying to expand slave states leading up to the Civil War, adding it down. They wanted to, there's a, there's famous quotes about them trying to move into Mexico to take part of Mexico so they could have more slaves. Uh, But uh, John Kelly said that, and about Robert E. Lee, and I'm going to give you the facts here in a second. But the Twitterverse absolutely exploded. Uh, Ted Lieu, our congressman right here in town. Dear John Kelly, the United States of America exists because President Lincoln did not compromise. Because if he had compromised, it would have been two states. It would have been southern. It would have been a bunch of miniature states. They would have broken up if he had compromised. But he did not compromise on the preservation of the union. And that is something that people agree with. Also, Cyrus McQueen, on his quote, the lack of ability to compromise caused the Civil War. Yeah, I guess we should have let him keep at least a few slaves, huh? I mean, that's your compromise? Keep a few slaves? Bernice King, as in Dr. King, it's irresponsible and dangerous, especially when white supremacists feel emboldened to make fighting to maintain slavery courageous. That is not where we want to go. And you thought, okay, well, that gives John Kelly an opportunity to adjust his words. But they went to Sarah Huckabee Sanders and asked about it, and this is what happened. I'd like to follow up on something you said earlier, but I also want to follow up on the the conversations that's been happening about this slavery compromise. I'm not asking you to relitigate the Civil War. We don't need a history lesson on the compromises that have happened. But 
does the White House at least acknowledge that the Chief of Staff's comments are deeply offensive to some folks and historically inaccurate? No, because as I said before, I think that you can't, because you don't like history doesn't mean that you can erase it and pretend that it didn't happen. And I think that's the point that General Kelly was trying to make. Um, and I, I, to try to create something and push a narrative that simply doesn't exist is just frankly outrageous and absurd. I think the fact that we keep trying to drive, the media continues to want to make this uh, and push that this is some sort of a uh, racially charged and divided White House. Frankly, the only people I see stoking uh, political racism right now are the people in the groups that are running ads like the one you saw take place in Virginia earlier this week. That's the type of thing that I think really is a problem. And I think it is absurd and disgraceful to keep trying to make comments and take them out of context and mean something they simply don't. (laughs) Ah, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the best uh, spokes liar ever. Uh, When we come back, uh, let's talk about the facts of what she was referring to when we return to Possibility Politics. Possibility Politics, the independent state of mind where we look at this gorgeous country in all her complicated glory and love her just exactly the way she is. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for listening. We are uh, talking about John Kelly. Uh, oh, I have to bring in my son for a minute here. Dad, I want to hear that again. I just want, I want to hear that again. Absolutely. <laughs> all right, John Kelly. The lack of an ability to compromise uh, led to the Civil War. And uh, men and women of good faith on both sides made their stand where their conscience uh, had them make their stand. Uh, We're going to get into that for a second. But the reason it was the it was the lack it was the end of the compromise. It was decades of compromise that were still keeping people enslaved that led to the Civil War. Carry on, John. You know, 500 years later. Yeah, yeah. uh, It's inconceivable to me that you would take what we, we think now and apply it back then. I would tell you that Robert E. Lee was an honorable man. Uh, he was a man that uh, gave up uh, gave up his country to fight for his state, which in 150 years ago was more important than country. I think we make a mistake, though. And, See, when he says that that he gave up his country to fight for his state, there's a certain historical accuracy to that in the sense that uh, Lincoln actually went to Robert E. Lee and said, I want you to be a general for the Union forces. Uh, but he was a Virginian, and he decided to fight on the southern side. That was one of the points that is true. But when we talk about an honorable man, and you say it's the context of history, right? How can we fault them, like even some of the founding fathers, right? Uh, Jefferson, slave owners and such, right? And okay, okay. But <laughs> it doesn't make it right, even though they— we're following the status quo. I mean, there's a word that everybody loves in our modern political discourse, right? We hate the status quo. We got to change the status quo. Well, guess what? The status quo back then was slavery. And a lot of folks got to do it and did do it and didn't know how to remove their economy from the slave system. And so therefore didn't. In the same way that Democrats say, well, we, we have to compete with corporate money like Republicans do or whatever your situation is. That's <laughs> a Horrible comparison to slavery and Democrats. Please don't ever connect those lines. Those are not good analogies. I apologize for that connection. But Tanahisi Coates, you know, he's a great writer, writes for The Atlantic. Uh, if you don't know who he is, look him up. T-A hyphen N-E-H-I-S-I Coates, C-O-A-T-E-S. Anyway, he um, had some tweets on this. 
regarding John Kelly's creationist theorizing, as he says, on Lee and the Civil War, it's worth pointing out a few things. The notion that Civil War resulted from a lack of compromise is belied by all the compromises made on enslavement from America's founding. And if you do a look, it's so true. Remember the three-fifths compromise? Uh, that they said, well, the compromises will make slaves three-fifths of a man, will make black people three-fifths of a man. That isn't compromise. What about the Missouri Compromise, the Kansas-Nebraska Act? Look these things up. Lincoln's own platform was compromised. Lincoln was not an abolitionist at first. He proposed to limit slavery's expansion, not end it initially. That was compromised, too. That wasn't enough. It still led to the war. So it wasn't a lack of compromise. He tweaked everything. They tried to, they tried to even accept slavery longer. They, he, Lincoln repeatedly sought to compromise by paying reparations to slaveholders and shipping blacks out of the country. There was another compromise. Well, you, okay, you can keep your slavery, but tell you what, we'll pay you for your slave and send them back. And if you got to remember, too, some of the things that these, these folks, Southerners were in charge uh, during 49 of the 72 years from, from 1789 to 1861, the presidents of the United States were all Southerners, all of them slaveholders. The only presidents to be reelected were slaveholders. Two-thirds of the speakers of the House, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, and the president's pro tem of the Senate were all Southerners and slave owners. At all times before 1861, a majority of Supreme Court justices were. So... The compromise was already happening. And, and, and say, for instance, there's a compromise. Lincoln asked only 10% of voters in rebel states to sign a loyalty oath for readmission in the Union. Talk about compromise. He said, if hey, if just 10% of you are willing to say you're against slavery and loyal to the Union, uh, then we'll accept the whole state. That's not compromise. And even after Lincoln's death, compromise of 1877 led to the white supremacist rule in the South for a century. They let, and then Dred Scott, all these different things. The, the, obviously, the Supreme Court justices who led to Dred Scott. Uh, and then uh, this idea that I love this Tennessee code says, shocking. It is shocking that someone charged with defending their country, that being John Kelly, in some profound way does not comprehend the country they claim to defend. The notion that we are putting today's standards on the past is in itself racist. It implies that only white slaveholding opinions matter. The majority of people living in, eight, in Mississippi in 1860 were black. They knew in their own time that enslavement was wrong. If you didn't know that enslavement was wrong in 1860, I know you say, well, it's context of history. This isn't that. You know it's wrong. <laughs> and if you don't know it's wrong, then you're going to be proven wrong by history. Bingo. And that's why you can't say, oh, we can't judge these folks. Yeah, you can judge them for not realizing it was wrong and say, okay, well, that's it. Now, Robert E. Lee, okay? An honorable man, according to uh, John Kelly. Yes, he's not without honor. Obviously, he did some very honorable things. Uh, like, you know, uh, <laughs> what's this great quote from Tennessee? Praising Robert E. Lee as an honorable man is just sad. Like some kid insisting his deadbeat dad is actually a secret agent away on a mission. And a little history there. Lee's heavy hand on the Arlington plantation uh, it was, was well known Lee either beat the slaves himself or ordered the overseer to, quote, lay it on well. Wesley Norris, one of the slaves who was whipped, recalled that, quote, not satisfied with simply lacerating our naked flesh, General Lee then ordered the overseer to thoroughly wash our backs with brine, salt water, which was done. Lee wasn't some agnostic uh, pressed into war. He was a dude who basically thought torture was okay with slaves. 
During his invasion of Pennsylvania, Lee's army of Northern Virginia enslaved free blacks and brought them back to the South as property. Prior writes that, quote, as the historian uh, John Pryor, the, that evidence links virtually every infantry and cavalry unit in Lee's army with the abduction of free black Americans with the activity under the suspicion of senior officers. They knew it. Oh, supervision, not suspicion. Under the supervision of senior officers. So <laughs> this is, you got to get your history right. And they did want it. They wanted to expand it. Uh, the um, Edward Pollard, the journalist who wrote the book titled The Black Time, perhaps uh, in, in 1958, Mississippi Senator Aller, Albert Gallatin Brown said, quote, I want Cuba and I know that sooner or later we must have it. If the worm eaten throne of Spain is willing to give it to a fair equivalent, well, if not, we must take it. I want Tamalapas, uh, Potosi, and I, one or two other Mexican states, and I want them all for the same reason, for the planting and spreading of slavery. This is in there, (laughs) y'all. This is not subtle. And so John Kelly has done it again, and he has lost me, and he's lost a bunch of other folks. So uh, this is all uh, an unfortunate, if he was the only one. And what's interesting, there's another part that you don't even notice, y'all, is that he's dictating policy. He's dictating opinions. Remember how presidencies used to work? where a president would lay out an agenda, would lay out a point of view, and a chief of staff or anybody else uh, that was hired to support that would only reinforce that. They wouldn't create their own narratives. They wouldn't talk about what they thought was going on. If you were a frustrated Republican or even not a frustrated Republican, you should be looking at this administration, as many of my Republicans' friends have, and say, this is almost a coup in some respects. Because Donald Trump's absence of attention at driving the wheel is allowing the generals, Mattis, Mad Dog Mattis, John Kelly, uh, these folks are making decisions and making policy, and they may just be telling Donald Trump, hey, this is what we're doing, but it's quite clear that he's not at the wheel and he's not involved (laughs) in uh, what is going on. So. That is all I think I need to say uh, about John Kelly and the slaves and, and getting that right. It's just really sad that at this point, because and what Huckabee Sanders referred to, this is going on in the Virginia governor's race right now between uh, Ed Gillespie and Ralph Northam. Ed Gillespie, the Republican, and Ed Northam, the, the uh, Democrat. They are bringing up Confederate statues and they are... And the polls are getting tighter. They're talking about Confederate statues. They're talking about uh, race race baiting with MS-13 and making it sound like this is just they're doing a kind of a a Willie Horton ad against uh, the Republicans are against the Democrat. And in the Democrats fault, they're running on kind of a white race, too. They're saying, well, we got to appeal to white voters. And they're kind of throwing a lot of folks of color under the bus, which is pretty amazing in Virginia, because not that that not that there aren't all kinds of folks everywhere. But Virginia's got a good share of of folks who would not take that uh, very well, which is why this press corps said, aren't you asked Sarah Huckabee Sanders, aren't you a little upset that, uh, that don't you realize people are upset by these these concepts? They are not. They are not aware of it. So um, we are going to do. Also, I want to get into the Russian attack, too, because that is something that is active and it is active in the Virginia race. 
that what's going on there, there is the Russians are actively affecting this election. They are bombarding the voters of Virginia with divisive, ugly racial memes that either are originated by Americans, but they're repeated by us. That as well as we'll get into the gender revolution when we return to Possibility Politics. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining me where we're growing the knowing to uh, keep the minds blowing. That's why we call it Possibility Politics. And thank you for listening. Uh, once again, Juan Velasquez, thank you for uh, putting the show together. Much obliged. Please join us on Facebook and Twitter at Possibility Politics. Uh, the Russia story. While all this was going on, and we're obviously doing indictments about Russia collusion, no matter how much it's denied, a lot of news has been breaking on how massive this invasion was. So uh, allow me to uh, give you a taste of that. This morning, new bombshells from Facebook and Twitter on Russia's attempt to influence American voters in the lead up to the 2016 election. Facebook revealing to NBC News that 80,000 posts from Russian-backed Facebook accounts potentially reached a third of all Americans between 2015 and 2017. According to prepared testimony obtained by NBC News, the world's largest social network will tell Congress today that approximately 126 million people may have been served one of their stories at some point during the two-year period. Those posts came from 120 fake Russia-backed pages. At first, they only reached 29 million users, but then through likes, shares, and follows, they reached 126 million Americans. That's half of all eligible voters. Facebook says we shut these accounts down and began trying to understand how they misused our platform. The content was separate from 3,000 targeted ads on Facebook and Instagram, paid for by Russian entities. The admission comes nearly a year after Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg initially brushed off Facebook's role in the election, a position he recently walked back. I don't want anyone to use our tools to undermine democracy. That's not what we stand for. Also new today, Twitter says it found nearly 37,000 accounts that were linked to Russian entities between September 1st and November 15th, 2016. These automated accounts, or bots, tweeted 1.4 million times and were seen 288 million times. Twitter says the impact was limited, adding Russian-linked automated accounts constituted less than three-quarters of a percent of the overall election-related tweets on Twitter at the time. Congressional investigators are expecting more answers from Twitter, Facebook and Google in a series of hearings starting today on Capitol Hill. I want to know what we're going to do to make sure that our 2018 and 2020 elections are secure, because frankly, this threat is going to continue and they have a responsibility to help us stop foreign interference in our elections. Another big question on the minds of congressional investigators this morning is if there's any links between the Russian activity on Twitter, Google and Facebook and the Trump campaign in the lead up to the election. And one senator is telling us he'll be revisiting that question today and tomorrow. Those numbers are terrifying. You can say with total certainty, if you are a person who has voted before, you were hit with Russian uh, news and Russian effects and Russian propaganda. And not just the propaganda. They also just repurposed and rebotted and retrolled and removed, respread, uh, you know, stuff that, that was generated by Americans. Of course, you know, why not take the ammo? And they're finding out, of course, the hearings are going on now. And they've already, this is, that, that, that news story is already old. Uh, 
Twitter was wrong. Twitter's thought, oh, it's only this much. And then Facebook, you heard those numbers. No. Turns out they've done some independent studies way more than that. So those numbers aren't even as big as they could be. Plus, that reporter uh, eliminated or left out one of the parts that's coming out in the hearings today is that it was targeted. And this is where the collusion comes in. Somebody was explaining to Russia who to hit. So take that idea of one third of uh, half of voters uh, were hit with these informations. All kinds of stuff that just toxic stuff about Hillary Clinton, for instance, mostly. And then burners were hit with uh, negative stuff about Hillary Clinton. And remember, in all of those states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, where that tipped it for Donald Trump, if you take the Jill Stein votes or the uh, uh, Gary Johnson votes and you put them on Hillary's stack, she wins. It was that close. And it's and all the Russians had to do is just scare people over to the third party, too. And they scared enough. And you say, well, that that doesn't change the way that people feel about things. Yes, Hillary. I'm sorry, Hillary voters or Hillary supporters. She was a toxic character. Uh, they were the two most unliked candidates in presidential history. And you can say that's not her fault. You can say it's not his fault. That is definitely an argument for another show. I can't speak to that, but I can say that there was a reality that it was not. It, it created the conditions that Russia could come in and tip people because when you don't like anything. When you're not excited about anything, when you don't feel any purpose or passion, obviously there were many people who had purpose and passion behind both Hillary and uh, Bernie and and Trump. I mean, there's people that had purpose and passion. But for the majority of voters, unfortunately, it was a lesser of evils. Sorry to say that, but that's kind of how it was feeling to most people. Well, in that condition, that makes the bots and trolls of of Russia way more effective because if you're offered uh, two different flavors of ice cream and you hate them both, you know, uh, poops and cream and garbage and strawberries, uh, and somebody says, don't touch the garbage and strawberries, you'll take the poops and cream uh, because you just don't have a choice. Or you'll pick a third choice knowing you're throwing your vote away because you're just so disgusted by the process. Plus, again, remember, people were told that Hillary was going to win and the Russians inflated that too, by the way. They were very clever. All of that's being found out. So then they go into the hearings today, and here's the good news. Senate's on it. Al Franken was talking to Colin Stretch, who's the lawyer, nice name, right? Lawyer for Facebook. And he said to the to this lawyer, with, with great ferocity, this is something you guys have to deal with and fix. You were kind of the canary in the coal mine in 2016. How did Facebook, which prides itself on being able to process billions of data points and instantly transform them into personal connections for its users, somehow not make the connection that electoral ads paid for in rubles were coming from Russia? Those are two data points, American political ads and Russian money, rubles. How could you not connect those two dots? You know, Stretch tried to answer it, saying that admitted that uh, Facebook had not done an effective job on cyber theft, but admitted, quote, I think in hindsight, we should have had a broader lens. There were signals we missed and we were now folk and we are now focused. Franken, angry and sardonic, interrupted. People are buying ads on your platform with rubles. They're political ads. You put billions of data points together all the time. That's what I hear that these platforms do. You're, they're the most sophisticated things invented by man ever. Google has all the knowledge that man has ever developed. You can put together, but you can't put together rubles with a political ad and go, hmm, those two data points spell out something bad? Stretch replied. 
Senator, it's a signal we should have been alert to. And in hindsight, and he interrupted it again, cuts him off and says, please answer. Yes. He says to him, would you pledge not to publish a political ad paid for in North Korean if in North Korea? As Stretch demurred, Franken, frankly, uh, Franken interjected, of course, please answer yes or no. No, you're sophisticated. You're the chief legal counsel for Facebook. Answer yes or no. And so the Senate is on it. They are quite determined to find out <laughs> what happened here and the extent to which it happened. And by the way, it is still happening in this Virginia race. It's going to happen in 2018. They're going to be constantly trying to penetrate our social media and fill it filled with stuff that will make us angry. The antidote is get your BS meters up, which I think we have considerably in this. And the second antidote is to uh, is to get something is to get a, some knowledge on, uh, on 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 some candidates that we care about, that we're for candidates that we're purpose driven for, not just two ice cream flavors we hate. Because if we're for them, we will be less swayed by BS. We will be more truth seekers instead of just trying to find some reason not to like them. And I'll take anything that will do. All right, when we come back, a candidate that meets meets that description, as well as the sexual evolution. We return to possibility politics. This is Possibility Politics. I'm Jeff Stein. This is where we try to provide a more satisfying perspective on life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and uh, all things in our world. Because, uh, you know, we're trying to make sense of it all. I just want it to be a place that's uh, that a life that feels good. And the reason I got back into this and started to do this show is because uh, there seems to be a need. <laughs> a need from some perspective. And it, to that end, in fact... Uh, I got a lightning round coming up of a lot of really good and interesting news, which will take us out of the uh, sense that it's all falling apart because it isn't. It's all actually being reborn into a newer, more beautiful uh, expression in circumstances like this, like in a case like Watergate led to a bunch of new laws to protect it. Uh, things like this, administrations like that are we're experiencing, crony capitalism, all this stuff will be responded with with new candidates, new ideas, and I'm gonna share some of those with you in just a section. But first, let's talk about sex, baby. <laughs> let's talk about you. Ah, thank you, Salt and Pepper. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad yeah. things that make good and bad. Thank you, ladies. We shall. Uh, yeah, there's so much. This is this is another part of our great renaissance and rebirth. Is we are having discussions about genderism and sexism and harassment and predatory behavior and bullyism, and it's going fast now, y'all. I, I don't even. I can't get into too much of philosophical aspects of it because they're running out of show time here. But um, the uh, uh, let me give you the highlights. A, the, first of all, the Trump's lawyers are still dealing with there are actually some, you know, cases against Donald Trump, uh, some accusers. And they're trying to argue that he that Donald Trump cannot be sued because of his uh, political opinions and uh, the way what he says in his tweets, because they're tweets. And of course, the, the judges are expected or the judge is expected to go. Yeah, no, uh, if you harassed, we, we're going to deal with it. Because, again, the fun, hilarious part of if you're in a what about place, if you're if you're Democratic versus Republican kind of frame of mind. Donald, uh, Bill Clinton proved that a sitting president can be gone after for sexual harassment. Paula Jones, right? Remember all that? So I'm afraid Donald Trump is not immune because of precedent to being prosecuted there. So we'll keep you posted on that when that un, uh, unfolds. Another one, that, but the names keep dropping of folks who have done icky behavior. Mark Halperin, 
was one of the latest ones. He's an MSNBC uh, commentator. He worked on CNN, Daily Beast. And several women anonymously spoke to CNN and Daily Beast about his behavior, saying some of the women accused Halpern of rubbing his genitals against them while clothed. Uh, another conservative reporter, Emily Miller, a conservative reporter, said Halperin sexually assaulted her while they were both working at ABC News. Another woman said Halperin started lunging at her during a meeting in her office and backed her into a corner before she opened the door and ran out. And uh, also reported that he barely knew she barely knew Mark in the period of time when this was happening. So the the reason now he's already received repercussions. He's off MSNBC. He had a book and movie deal which was dropped instantly. And so if you are someone who's hoping that these have consequences, they are having consequences. Maybe it'll be too much, too little. I don't know. One of the top NPR editors just resigned. Name guy named Michael Oreskes, if I pronounced that correctly, I apologize if I didn't. He resigned Wednesday after two women came forward with sexual harassment behavior. Now, he owned it. He said, my behavior was wrong and inexcusable, and I fully ex- and accept full responsibility. The accusations against him came to light. Washington Post published two women's accounts uh, when he was serving as NPR's senior vice president of news and editorial director. He was placed on leave, of course. Both women alleged that Oreskes non-consensually kissed them during business meetings in the late 1990s when he was working at the New York Times. Non-consensually kissed them. I've kissed a number of women in my life. I don't remember non-consensually. And if I did, how could you not just immediately go, oh, I'm sorry, that obviously wasn't something you wanted. My apologies. Uh, I, I, I don't get it. I apologize for not being in understanding the mind of someone who does this. But that's what we're doing. That's why salt and Peppa's advice is good. We need to figure out what is it that's going on. We'll have to save that for another show. Another one, Brett Ratner, director Brett Ratner, director producer Brett Ratner, apparently uh, has six women have accused him of uh, of sexual misconduct, including Olivia Munn. Remember Olivia Munn? Don't know. Remember, she's still around. The great actress. You can go, you can Google her. M U N N. Um, Apparently, she uh, he, she had to make a specific and to avoid him after that too. This was before she was famous. She was let's see, was it David? This was this, now, of course, Brett Ratner's the guy that directed things like X Men, The Last Stand, Rush Hour, uh, a lot of Hollywood blockbusters. Uh, but she told the peer that 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 he, Brett Ratner. Had uh, I'm trying to find the allegations here. What she did. Um, also, Natasha Hentridge, 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 by the way, when she was a 19 year old fashion model, he physically forced himself on her and made her perform oral sex on him. He strong armed me in a real way. He physically forced himself on me. At some point, I gave in and did and did his thing. <laughs> and <sighs> this is just getting uglier and uglier. So we're gonna see what happens to Brett Ratner. I don't know what. Um, you know the story how uh, Netflix has suspended the production of House of Cards because Kevin Spacey handled that so poorly. And it really changes the way you look at American beauty, by the way. Holy crap. Uh, which, of course, remember that in the scene where he kind of like fantasizes and about the uh, the teenage girl the in the, in the story. And uh, yeah, yeah. But this is where we need to have these discussions. And another one is uh, Jackie Spear, who is a congressman from California. She was kind of made famous back when she was with a congressman, I believe it was Ryan, not Paul Ryan, a different Ryan, back in the 70s and went with Jim Jones to Guyana. You may recall that. And they were shot at uh, when she went to go investigate these folks who were 
talking about the people's temple and all the cyanide and drinking the Kool-Aid. I bring that, remember, drinking the Kool-Aid? That's where that expression comes from when they're all forced to drink cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. Jackie Spear was there with the congresswoman, the congressman trying to investigate that. I don't know if she was shot. I think she might have been shot too, but the, they were uh, they were shot at by the, uh, the, the camp people there. Anyway, she brought up some Me Too situations in Congress. Like so many of you, I have a Me Too story to share. I was working as a congressional staffer. The chief of staff held my face, kissed me, and stuck his tongue in my mouth. So I know what it's like to keep these things hidden deep down inside. I know what it's like to lie awake in bed at night wondering if I was the one who had done something wrong. I know what it's like years later to remember that rush of humiliation and anger. You know what? Many of us in Congress know what it's like because Congress has been a breeding ground for a hostile work environment for far too long. That's why I'm reaching out to congressional staff and to former congressional staff to share their Me Too Congress stories if they feel comfortable in doing so. There is nothing to fear in telling the truth. And it's time to throw back the curtain on the repulsive behavior that until now has thrived in the dark without consequences. The time is now. Join Me Too Congress, and together we will bring justice for all of us. So she's pushing uh, to change the system, obviously, for reporting sexual harassment and, and, on, and assault. She said, there is no accountability whatsoever. It's rigged in favor of the institution and the members, and we can't tolerate that. And if you think that's just opinion and hyperbole, know this. that Under the current system in Congress, victims, victims— of a sexual harassment in by a congressman or a congr- congressional staffer must attend mediation or counseling for up to three months before they can file a complaint. And members and staffers are not required to attend sexual harassment training. And for those of you who live in a corporate environment, which I have, uh, you always had to take the annual training every year. And they tell you what a hostile work environment it is. And I worked in a comedy department where we told vulgar and disgusting jokes all day long. And so I would always check with my staff, male and female, and say, does anyone feel like this is a hostile work environment? Uh, it is the ob- it is the responsibility to be on top of those things. And in Congress, you don't even get to file a complaint until you, the victim, have attended mediation. It reminds me of the, the folks who push these abortion ideas where you have to be forced to watch a video about uh, you know how bad abortion is before you're allowed to have one. It's like really we're gonna we're gonna go after those folks. So we got a long way to go there. Uh, we're gonna keep bringing this up and exposing it. And, and on another show, I want to get into uh, the deeper parts of that. Now, some good news about the electoral world. This insanity is leading to a renaissance, the greatest social, political, economic, spiritual, technological renaissance in the history of mankind. And the way that is born is that. Case in point, there has been an attack on people of the Islamic faith, Muslim people. In many ways, they've been obviously the focus of some seriously ugly stuff from this administration and others in, the, unfortunately, mostly the Republican Party. And a in Michigan, Abdul Al-Sayed uh, is a gentleman who is running for governor in Michigan. I'm going to play a little bit of his ad to show you he, Abu Abdul Al-Sayed. Imagine somebody like that running for a governor of a state uh, before, right after 9-11, for instance. They would have been attacked as some sort of horrible person. But here's their ad. It's really amazing. This is the most precious place on earth. They're showing uh, Where we America. put our little bundles of joy. 
and plan the best future we can imagine for them. This is where we'll put our own bundle of joy. And we couldn't be more excited. I'm Abdul. And I'm Sarah. His wife. As we get ready for our baby and worrying about 10 fingers and 10 toes, there's something else that worries us. Because for the past seven years, every precious child across Michigan has been let down by failed leaders. They put lead in our water, let jobs disappear, and did nothing as poison leaked into our air and into our politics. That's unacceptable. And that's why I'm running for governor. I've been surrounded by Michigan kids my whole life. I grew up here, became a doctor. And when I took over Detroit's health department, I saw firsthand just how many kids our leaders in Lansing had let down. But we got to work. We worked to lower infant mortality rates, forced corporations to cut their emissions. We enrolled thousands into Obamacare and provided free glasses for every child who needed a pair. What I learned is that leadership only starts when we choose to believe. When we believe we can move beyond the politics that tell us that corporate money matters more than real people. We believe we can move beyond the cynicism that has divided us. And we believe in the idea and the promise of Michigan. And if we are willing to reach across these divides, if we're willing to touch hands on something that is far greater than we are, our shared future, I know that there are solutions that we can push forward. My wife, Sara, she's pregnant with our first daughter. And that baby girl, she's gonna be this ethnically half Egyptian, half Indian, 100% American woman. And I asked myself about the kind of world that she deserves. The kind of place that we together have to build for her. But that future that she's gonna live, the future that you all are gonna hand off to your children, that future is ours for the building. If we're willing to recognize that it needs us, that in fact the only way we will build it is if we do it together. All of us, all 10 million strong in this state. And we have that here. Let's go get it. Thank you. Yeah. That's what's going on in Michigan. The place where Donald Trump carried because uh, people were so disgusted and so fed up. A man named Abdul Al-Sayed, who, as you can see, there's no Arab accent or Muslim accent or Egyptian accent. And here he is, half Egyptian, half Indian. You know, I I was having a conversation and and, and somebody was describing uh, some kids. And they said, oh, look at that kid. He's all American because he was kind of like this white guy. And I said, wait a second. What is all American? All American is going to be multiracial. That will be the new all-American. When my kid grows up, someone says all-American. If you were in the 50s, right, all-American, right? Some white person that looked German or I don't know, or some sort of, you know, Aryan thing. It was just now I can't even hear myself say it. It feels icky to say that. And I love what Chris Darden said, who was one of the uh, uh, prosecutors in the O.J. Simpson trial. He said that, uh, wherever America's going, pretty soon there won't be white people or black people. We'll all be taupe. And the beauty of what that is is that we will be made of many races. Already, if you're a, if you're a quote-unquote white person, like I'm a white person by technical and description, you look at me, but I, that's confusing to me because I'm like six, six different nationalities. Uh, so what does that mean? Am I Norwegian? Am I Polish? Am I German? Am I, you know, I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. I'm all American. We're all all American if you're born here and you believe in these ideals. And this is what is rising up. And he's running for governor of Michigan. And I don't know what his chances are, but uh, the fact that his chances exist, I think, is representative of where we are going. And so 
This is our country. And let me give you some more before we go, some more good news. In Puerto Rico, Tesla has stepped up and built a solar grid to power the children's hospital, the Los Niños Children's Hospital in San Juan, because the government wouldn't step up. Hospital del Nino, I apologize. Hospital del Nino of the capital of San Juan. Tesla is stepping up. There are now six cities in the U.S. running on 100% renewable electricity. That's pretty awesome. I'll put that on the, the Facebook page. You can see that. Uh, there's bad news. There's most stuff that, uh, you know, Trump is trying to mess with student loans for people, but they are because apparently the, the uh, uh, Betsy DeVos wants to get rid of student loans or make people pay them even when their country, when their for-profit colleges have defrauded them. Uh, and we're and the rest of Congress is on that, too. Um, Donald Trump wanted to change the biggest mountain in America back from Denali to back to McKinley because Obama changed it to McKinley. Um, there's a plans to build a to plant one billion trees in the, a year by drone. There's a drone that plants trees and does it every few six seconds, and they're going to do that. That's a cool story. They have a new meatless impossible burger that they've been testing, and if it's it's fooling people like me, I am a diehard Connor carnivore. I love a steak. I love a burger. I love ribs off the bone. But I've always said, if you can come up with a version, especially a burger, and I don't know the difference, I will most certainly eat it. And apparently, they are close, and they kind of have it. (laughs) Also, you should know about the border angels. These are folks who are trying to, in contrast to the wall being built, they stash water along the border between Mexico and and America in order to help people uh, get to have water while they're getting through. England and France have banned the sale of diesel and petrol cars by 2040, Norway by 2025, India by 2030. There is this massive movement towards wisdom and kindness, and we are on it. This is a beautiful country, y'all. You should really enjoy it. Step back. Look at broad view. That's how you can stomach all the bad is to try to see through the lens of what is being realized and born in this contrast. And it is thick and it is powerful. And I thank you for joining me. This is what we do. This is Possibility Politics. This has been Possibility Politics with Jeff Stein. The social, political, pop cultural discussion show that looks at life through the rose-colored eyes of the almost criminally optimistic Jeff Stein. 